My name is Nick Wagner Sr. and I am the founder of the Full Potential Movement. So welcome everyone to another episode of the Full Potential Live Show. It's Sunday night at 8 o'clock Eastern. I'm Nick Wagner Sr. and I am thrilled to be with Holly O'Driscoll tonight. Uh, so Holly, thank you for joining. Hey, my pleasure, Nick. Really excited to chat. It's going to be fun. So as, as we talk, Holly, so we record this live. Uh, we stream it to LinkedIn and YouTube. And then I'll take this, take the recording, and we'll actually put the video out on LinkedIn and YouTube afterwards so everyone can watch if they can't see it tonight. And then we'll take the audio and we'll turn it into the podcast. So my full potential podcast, we'll, we'll, we'll share that later this week. And that'll go to all the major podcast platforms, including Apple and Google and Spotify, et cetera. So for those of you listening to this um, on the on the post, the post live show, welcome and thanks for listening. And Holly, we will make sure that we, in the show description, that we share um, any link you want us to share to. So if you want to connect people to your LinkedIn or a website, we'll make sure to share that as well. So people can get in touch with you if they want to hear more about, if they want to hear more about what you do, um, either personally or professionally, if that's cool with you. Sounds good. Yeah. All thanks. Right. Nick. So, so why don't we, I like to ask my guests, if you were to meet someone, Holly, in a professional setting, like at a conference conference or, um, maybe somewhere where you're consulting and they asked you, who is Holly? What's your, what is your two minute elevator pitch on who is Holly O'Driscoll? Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think that's a great question. Um, and I get asked a lot on, you know, who are you? What do you do? And I often start with, you know, first and foremost, I'm a mom of four kids and I am, am very much committed to bringing more human centeredness to the world. And I think part of that is starting with the fact that I've got four kids and a husband and a dog, right? Right. And, um, really stepping into that space of trying to make a difference by elevating our sense of collective humanity using these underlying principles of this concept known as design, principles of this concept known as design thinking. And I'll unpack that a little bit more as well. Um, Cause a lot of people go, well, what is that? And that inspires yeah. a whole other level of conversation, which is really fun to have. I love, I love how, I love how you lead with the, your, you know, a, a wife and, and, a, and a mother um, because we've had many of these conversations about how important my family is to me um, and my three kids and, and my wife. So, and my dog and cat, I'll throw them in there too. So uh, I, I appreciate that because I think, you know, we've talked about this. They only grow up once, right? And you don't want to miss that. So I, I love how that you, you actually tell people that um, because I think it makes you a lot more human. I think, I think it makes you a lot more real. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that I've found over time um, in this practice of human centeredness and design thinking is this need for congruence and this focus on really living the principles and the principles in ways that um, didn't feel as as necessary, perhaps in some of the other roles I had earlier in my career. But once you really kind of wrap your mind around this philosophy, it does become lifestyle. And when you think about the congruence of things like empathy and curiosity and ideation and prototyping and really kind of living life with that mindset, it changes things, right? I've, I've been known to talk about, you know, for me, design thinking is a lifestyle, you know, with the herd of children, I never know what I'm going to wake up to, who's going to lose their shoes, right? Who's going to leave their lunch on the steps? Like, what does that look like? And you figure out how to work through it. And I think those are little mini analogies for the same kind of struggles that we have at work every day, right? You never know what you're going to face when you show up at work. 
on you know what's going on with the specific employee, what's happening with the project, what's happening with the supplier, uh, what's what's really what's really kind of needed in the organization in that moment. And you know, I think we we are more able to face some of those moments of challenge when we tap into those experiences we have in our our personal life. Um, when it comes time to kind of bring that same mindset and skill set to our professional life. I think we're one person. And I know I've been more satisfied when I can show up with that sense of congruence, both personally and professionally. Yeah. And and it's interesting, right? Because if you go back, go back 20 years, 30 years, when when we didn't have, you know, this, this super fast internet everywhere, all the time, instant on, right? Either your laptop, like we're using tonight or your cell phone, your work and your personal lives, I think we're separated a lot more, right? Because everyone had to go to, for, for office jobs, you had to go to the office, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't have a lot of people working at home, if you yeah. will, um, or working yeah. um, or working from Starbucks or name the name the co-working Yeah, space. when so, I first started at P&G in 1996, I had a desktop computer. <laughs> and I had a laptop that I used in the laboratory that I traveled with, right? When I needed to go to a plant visit. But that was only for lab use. It didn't connect to the email system or right, anything, right? right. Um, and so now I had a desktop. So I absolutely was not carrying work home with me. And it was long before cell phones. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it, I think it's just a lot different. I think, and I, everyone I know that's been really successful in their, in their life and their careers are the people that can kind of seamlessly move between work and professional mm-hmm. uh, work and personal life, if that makes sense. And and make you know have it balanced, right? I think that is is really what what the name of the game is today. So I kind of love how you, you talked about you know kind of melding all these, like what you're teaching into your personal life as well. I love that. So um, before we jump into like what before we jump into like what you do in your career today and, and what you're doing from a consulting and innovation perspective, I'd like to I like to always start the career journey kind of going back to uh, did you know what you wanted to do growing up? Like, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur and a, an innovation design thinking consultant? I'm going to guess at age six or seven, you didn't know you wanted to do that. No, so when no, you were I had high, no idea. Um, in fact, I would say even at age 30, I didn't know I wanted to do that, right? Because it didn't exist. And um, yeah, so when you think back to kind of age five or six, I do think there were early signs and signals of doing something that maybe kind of plays out in a disruptive kind of way. So, I mean, for me, that started um, when I was five, when I went to kindergarten for two weeks and then I got kicked out. Um, So, (laughs) right, I often use that as my introduction when I'm giving a talk and when I'm giving a talk somewhere and people chuckle and it is funny for sure, but I do think that there's early signals in each of us that um, really connect to the work that we're doing now. So I got kicked out of kindergarten for telling the teacher what to do and doing other people's work and telling the teacher how many minutes she had left to teach and it wasn't going so well. And so I got sent home for a little while while the governor of Kentucky or all on the south side of Cincinnati, depending on your frame of reference in the world, right, um, decided that that it was okay for me to go on to the first grade. And so I think a couple things emerged from that. One is um, I'm pretty comfortable kind of rocking the boat, which is not something that we are educated, corporatized, or socialized to believe is okay. And um, for me, that happened kind of 1980. And 
right, when it wasn't particularly in vogue. But I think that those early experiences that we do have um, set us up for a trajectory, um, set us up for a trajectory um, that you might not see visibly in that moment. Um, but it, when you kind of connect the dots and go, hold on a second, here's my story, it starts to hang together, right? And um, I'll fast forward a few years when I went on to middle school, um, I would say the same kind of theme continued, but manifestation occurred in a little bit of a different way. So I had one of those really nice zipper pouches of pens and pencils. And um, I still have this thing for office supplies. Like I like the tactile nature of, of kind of cardstock and really, really great, right? So fun. But I would bring my, my pouch of pens and pencils to class and I'd loan them out and I wouldn't get them back. And so I thought, well, this isn't really going well. I'm going to start a business. So it was two cents a minute to rent a pencil and five cents a minute to rent a pen. And I came home with this bag of money and my mom says, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm running a business. She's like, hold on a second. <laughs> right. So that was middle school. So I feel that was middle school. So I feel like the pattern continues to emerge on, well, I don't know, what's the worst that could happen? I'm going to see this opportunity and try to take advantage of that. Um, and then in high school, my real intention was to go on to med school. And so that led to me majoring in chemistry in college because I was told that um, the majority of the MCAT entrance exam for med school was chemistry-based, um, which turned out to be true. But since I didn't spend a lot of time on biology in college because I was a chem major, um, I didn't do so well in the biology. So when I took the MCAT, I did great on the chemistry and on the writing and the English and not so great on the biology. So I thought, oh, what am I going to do Chemistry was like, quick fun fact, chemistry was, I think I got a D my second semester of chemistry at UConn. That was the worst grade I ever got in like my life. And it was, uh, so kudos to you for getting through that because I couldn't even imagine like how, how hard that was. Well, you know, it's a struggle, right? But, you know, it's a struggle, right? But I think kind of continuing on that theme of, um, for me, kind of perseverance. I mean, I failed organic chemistry the first time I took it as well. And I was determined to get through it. And so I think there is that perseverance and determination that kind of lives in our gut, lives in our heart, right. shows up in the work. And, um, you know, at the time I was kind of mortified that I, I failed it, um, but it was really hard. And I would argue I didn't have the best experience from a, a teaching perspective. <laughs> Um, because I feel like I've learned a lot, a lot of things that are harder than that and done very well, um, because I think there's chemistry in the, the teaching component that I think is really important. It shows up in how I teach today as well. Yeah. So, so what, what was, so just to pause you for a second. So you, you ended up wanting to be a doctor, but yeah. what, was your, what was your first job that you ever got paid to do? Like, you know, maybe middle school or high school. Like, I love hearing school. Like, I love hearing this. What what was your, like, not the selling of the renting of the pencils. What was your first, like, actual job? Yeah, sorry. How far back do you want to go? What was the first tax-paying job, perhaps? Yeah, per, first tax-paying job. Yeah, right. Well, aside from kind of neighborhood babysitting, um, I was working in the concession stand at our community pool. And I think I was making $3 an hour. And um, so, yeah, not a lot of, of value, but I had a good time. Yep. Um, so that was really, and I was at the pool all the time anyway. Um, and I learned to cook a lot of things. I learned the importance of kind of service. And um, then I went to work in a retail store, sporting goods store, where I learned to restring tennis rackets and baseball gloves and size people for golf clubs. So some interesting okay. things there. Um, one of my dad's friends worked at, he was the manager at the sporting goods store. And my dad really wanted this tent 
that um, I could get with a employee discount. So that is like, funny. You're gonna go work at this. You're gonna go work at the sporting goods store so I can get the tip. That is hilarious. I mean, that's not a bad idea. So. Yeah, right. Um, no, I just I just love hearing that because I, I feel people always always remember that, right? Like, what was their first job? Like they always yeah. flash back like, oh yeah, this is what I did, right? And I think you learn a lot, especially at that age from doing those things. Um, yeah. So so, let, so let's, I just, well, I just wanted to get, get to that point before we went to back to college. So, so MCATs didn't go well. Yeah. And you decided you weren't going to be a doctor. Is that without a doctor? Is that without like a turning no, point? No, I thought, okay, fine. I'll go back and get a master's in biochemistry and kind of go from there, right? Um, back that that fire in the gut and fire in the heart. So um, then PNG came to campus at my university, and for those listening, Procter and Gamble. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, which is kind of the the iconic company here in the Cincinnati area. And, and what, can you give an example for some people like maybe they don't know what they make? Sure. Like yeah. So um, PNG brands, some of the largest: um, Pampers, Tide, Pantene, Head and Shoulders, Crest. Bounty paper towels, Charmin toilet paper, a whole variety of things that you probably have in your house today. Um, and so they are headquartered here in Cincinnati, where I live today. And I kind of lived inside the loop in the Cincinnati area, which um, kind of crosses over into Kentucky. I've been in that space my entire life. And so they were interviewing on campus at my university. And so I thought, well, what's the worst that could happen? I'll, well, what's the worst that could happen? I'll learn something from a really hard interview. And so I went to the interview on campus and they called me back for a day visit. And um, up until that point, I don't think I ever had such a long day in my life aside from taking the MCAT. Um, so I showed up at 7 a.m. for interviews. And I think I wrapped up around 5.30 p.m. And I drove wow. completely exhausted, right? <laughs> and I was interviewing in the engineering organization. Um, and my intent was to really get some great interviewing experience. And ultimately they offered me a job. And I said, I think I want to go to med school. And they said, I'll oh, just come hang out for a little while. Um, you know, we can pay for some classes if you want to do that and kind of go from there. And they clearly knew way more about this than, than I did, right? I mean, I was barely 21 finishing my undergrad because I got kicked out of kindergarten, which changed kind of my age dynamic there. And they've seen this all before. So instead of lasting, you know, two, maybe three years, I was there more than 22. I was there more than 22. And, and I'm sure they knew that all along, right? This is how it goes. So did they pay for a couple of classes for me? Yes, right, <laughs> absolutely. And then did they pay for my MBA? Yes, they paid for all of that. Um, but I, I more than kind of paid back my terms of our contract in doing that. So yeah, so. so what, what was your first job for Procter & Gamble? Wow, yes, this was June of 1996. I was a corporate engineering um, technologist and my job was focusing on interfacial engineering. So. Um, for those of you who are not interested in kind of the emulsion dispersion technology science, you might want to hit pause for a second. But my job was to make sure that the liquid products that were being made in a laboratory, inside a corporate facility, inside a pilot plant facility, which is a little bit bigger, and inside a full plant facility, were actually showing up at the same kind of, um, same kind of um, molecular fingerprint. So what does that mean? So it's all about consistency. Yeah, about consistency Got and it. around the world um, and particularly for liquids. So phase separation is an issue in a lot of products, right? 
And so my job was to make sure that they were hanging together, that the phases, if you think about salad dressing, like the oil and water interface in a salad dressing, and you shake it up and it's, it's connected for a while. Um, and when you think about kind of dispersions and emulsion stability, you need to stay connected over time, which is why your lotion stays consistent or your conditioner stays consistent. So that was my job for a few years. That's interesting. Yeah, and but I didn't really, I wasn't in love with it. I remember having this conversation with my first boss, who is still a really good friend of mine today, uh, and saying, wow, you know, I'm working on conditioner system stability, but I got to tell you, I've been washing my hair for a really long time, and I really like to use conditioner, and I've never had a problem. So why am I doing this work when, why am I doing this work when I was really rooted in trying to make a difference for people? Yeah. And, um, you know, he looked at me like, "Mm, what do you mean, right? (laughs) We need conditioner. And while I think that's true, I wasn't in love with solving that kind of problem. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to make a difference for people. And so um, it took me a little while before I got to go and do that kind of work, but I got there. So that's so funny. I mean, it, it's just interesting. I think a lot of people probably never would have guessed that would be a job, um, what you just said, right? But when you think about the type of stuff that, that P&G manufactures, they have a lot of people with, you know, chemistry and biology backgrounds to mm-hmm. an engineer to help, you know, figure all those things out. So yeah, um, there's, probably, there's probably quite a few of you working on a lot of different things like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was in a corporate role, so I'd float around the businesses, which I think looking back was one of the things that was really important in my career growth and development, because I got to meet, got to meet and experience a lot of different people in different brands. Uh, anything that was a liquid, I was kind of assigned an, on a task force to go and solve should there be an issue. And uh, rather than being kind of channeled into one specific business unit, I got to float around the company, which was really, really That's a fun cool. experience. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> you know, from your LinkedIn, you you did multiple roles at Procter and Gamble, but oh, how did sure. you how did you eventually did you eventually get to? I, I was looking. So you started in '96, and then you eventually you know, after multiple roles ended up doing design thinking right? end of like 2009, I think it said. So how did you get from where you started to there over throughout, throughout these multiple journeys? Was, was there a, was there a plan? Cause I think people always want to know this. Was there a plan for you to get to where you ended up at Procter & Gamble? Was it just like you went right up? Like you just kept getting promoted or did you kind of zigzag? Like what, what was that like? Because I think a lot of people, are very curious, especially in a company the size of Procter & Gamble? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say it was completely random and serendipitous, largely based on relationships. So not unlike a lot of what the rest of us experience in our, our daily lives, um, but it was pretty random. So I spent about six years in the engineering organization. At the end of that, I had finished my MBA. My MBA. Um, but I remember wanting to move from the technical organization to the commercial. And um, trying to do that was a bit of a challenge, right? Because it's a completely different career structure. And um, what I was lucky to have the opportunity to do was um, to engage with this community of, of excellence or community of practice, depending on kind of what your organization calls it, same kind of concept. Um, but the design organization was just taking off in kind of 2001. Um, I remember we were supposed to go and do a poster at a symposium for the technical community the morning of 9-11. In fact, I was just telling my daughter about this yesterday. And um, 
So I had stayed home that morning because it was a different direction for the commute to go to the, the symposium. Um, and I had my computer up on my lap and kind of doing email and email and had the Today Show on in the background. And then all this goes on with the, the events of 9-11, right? And so I remember what I was working on, what I was wearing, what that day was right. supposed to yeah. be about. And the day was supposed to be about talking about the power of design with the technical community. And um, I remember having this conversation with the design leader at the time, who I still am good friends with too. And I said, gosh, I'm so inspired and so alive and energized by being a part of this work. You pick people like me, right? And he said, can you come on Monday? And I said, I don't know about that. Here, call my boss. Because a lot of the deals internally were kind of relationship-based as well. Um, You know, let's make a a horse trade for this kind of of talent in this space. And so it took me about three months. And then I did finally get to move over. So you were doing, so you started design thinking in the early 2000s. No, I moved to corporate design in that time. So in that time. So okay, okay, I'm sorry. Kind of taking root. Um, inside the company and just becoming a function. Um, actually, that didn't happen in the system around about 2004. But okay. when you think about um, kind of the early days of what that looked like, building a sensitivity of the importance of brand experience, of a holistic consumer experience, and you say, what does that mean? That means that, you know, when you think of orange, you think of Tide, and when you, you know, you have a certain smell of you know, draft laundry detergent for babies, you you get this nostalgic feeling about what that's like there too. And the colors mm-hmm. hang together and that there's a holistic proposition and um, you feel like it all fits together um, versus something that feels a little bit more what we would call Frankenstein-ish, right? <laughs> where, yeah. where it doesn't hang together in a thoughtful way. And so really heightening the sensitivity and the awareness of, of that whole concept of the organization is what I moved into in January of 2002, of 2002. And then I moved in uh, briefly to a communications role because my my original focus when I moved to design was to really bridge the gap between the commercial and the technical community because my roots were in the technical community. But I yeah. nicely transitioned into this appreciation for what was emerging inside the company um, and using those relationships in the past to say, hey, this stuff really matters. And because I had those relationships, I had ways in. You, well, you were able to speak both languages, basically. Yeah, and kind I still of... continue to play that role for the rest of my time there, for sure. And design thinking didn't show up until kind of 2007, I think the first training was. Um, June 1st, 2007, a big group of people went out to the Stanford D School, and I had a baby on June 24th of 2007, so I was too pregnant to travel. So right when I came back from maternity leave, I got trained immediately. And for me, that kind of changed my life, right? Because for the first time, there was this congruence with Hey, with hey, people matter more than anything else we can do. And when I think about the principles, right, this idea of empathy first, what does it look and feel like to be someone else and putting yourself in their shoes, whether or not you can, you know, really relate to what they're experiencing or not? Um, how do you imagine that that's possible? And then how does that inform the definition of the problem? Um, because it depends on where you sit, right? You know, your definition yeah. of reality and your perspective often shapes what you what you experience to be true. Um, and then moving into the space of ideation, exploring what's possible, which is one of the most exciting parts of the work. And then how do you prototype those solutions back with the people that you had empathy for, right? Go back and take them 
take the ideas back, bring them to life, say, hey, does this work for you? Or did I get it wrong? Is it right? And tell me what that looks like. And um, so what, for, for, for the people listening, what, how would you, because def- you kind of, you just broke design thinking down to, you know, design thinking down to, you know, a couple steps, but well, how do you just, how do you define it? Right. When someone asks you, what is design thinking? Yeah. What, what do you tell them? Right. So I'm going to give you my specific definition um, and everybody will give you a different one, which is part of the problem of design thinking. But when I try to simplify that, I talk about it as this shamelessly human centered approach to solving problems. And I, I think it's broad and I think it's important that it's broad. So when I think of shamelessly human-centered approach to solving problems, those could be organizational problems, those could be product problems, those could be um, climate problems, any kind of issue. How might we go after this challenge? Um, and shamelessly human-centered is really rooted in people matter more than what's possible from a technology standpoint, right. what's possible from a budget standpoint, what we believe is possible, right? And how do you step into that space of challenging assumptions and choosing to lean into what might be with this spirit with this spirit of people first so how are you using this at procter and gamble what what can you can you give us an example of a problem i don't know if you can um <clears throat> that you solved using design thinking at png yeah for sure um i think i'm going to start with an organizational one because it's it's been out kind of in the ether for some time as well Um, But this whole idea of employee value proposition was one that we went after. And I think that that's a really interesting space to play. And um, that effort actually happened in 2014. So when you think about, you know, late 2014, a little more than five years past, applying this human-centered approach in an organizational context was pretty early on at that point. Right now, you see a lot more of this happening in the the HR and organizational development organization context. Um, but that session was probably one of my most favorite and the piece of work that I'm I'm most proud of, most proud of um, from a core deliverable standpoint. So um, we brought together around 35 people from around the organization and um, we're really intentional about bringing in locally assigned expats. So while they were we were temporarily based here, they were from other parts of the world to really make sure that we get a global perspective. So leveraging that diversity, we brought in um, plant technicians, people that work in manufacturing sites. Yeah, um, yeah, and awesome. so we had literally fairly new people who were working in plants up through the president of North America in the room. And that it's, I mean, I get chills thinking about it, Nick, right? <laughs> so fun to have a couple of days with them. And it was November, 2014. And, um, we had a bunch of snow here in Cincinnati and that never happens usually that early in the season, but it was about six inches of snow. And I remember on the drive in being really nervous on, wow, are people going to show up on, wow, are people going to show up on time? Right. You know, what does this look like? And um, on the radio, when they were reading through a lot of the closings and the road assessments, they said, we haven't had this much snow since 1921. <laughs> And um, I tend to pick up and roll with those kind of things, this much snow at that, on that date anyway. And so I kicked off the session, I said, wow, you know, we've got this, this day with all the snow. I heard this morning it hasn't happened like this since 1921. And I think it's, it's not random and here's why, right? We have a once in a generation opportunity to reshape what it looks and feels like to, to be an employee here. 
right? Yeah, what is that story that we, t- and so those moments of leaning into what the universe serves up to you, in this case, it was six inches of snow and a really diverse group of people, um, super exciting work. And so applying design thinking to something like that inside the organization, just that inside the organization, discovering what does it look and feel like to be a part of this organization and how do you tell that story was really, really fun. Um, And then another one that comes to mind that's a little more on the product side, um, I spent a a fair amount of time working with one of the the brands um, in their manufacturing site. So the only time in the world that I still know of even today where a session was held in a plant facility to solve a problem um, in partnership with the corporate resources. So people that flew in from Cincinnati to the plant um, and with the plant staff, so shoulder to shoulder. And uh, that was a really exciting opportunity to bring the people who were literally shipping the, the cases out the door every day to the people who are crafting the strategy, throwing them into the same room and having them go through ideation and prototyping prototyping and serving up solutions um, for this specific business as well. So really kind of toggling between that organizational space, that organizational space and the product space over time. That's really cool. So it was so much fun to to think about, I mean, much like my engineering experience, floating as an internal consultant around the businesses to go after whatever kind of challenge was, was facing the team. So no, I think those were great examples. And what I love is how you, you, you kind of, because not everyone works in, a, in obviously a packaged goods corporate, you know, mm-hmm. company. So I think that gives a, it shows how it can, how versatile the, the the practice of design thinking really is. So you did that job for over six years. You were you were global design thinking leader, innovation strategist. Yeah, um, and then before that, North America. So I was specifically focused on North America before I took over the global. Yeah. Well, basically, like ten years of design thinking at PNG. Yeah, right. I, I have a talk on that actually. So I, guess, I learned from 10 years. I guess my, my question then is why leave leave a wildly successful career at probably one of the most well-respected global brands, you know, on the planet? Um, why leave to work for yourself? Yeah. Now it's a question that I, I got um, very recently, I think two weeks ago from a very young person on why would you do that? (laughs) And um, the story is an interesting one. So uh, several of my former internal partners at P&G had left and um, they would call and say, hey, can you come and do with my new team what you did with my old team? So when you say they left, they left Procter & Gamble. That's right. Yeah. So they went to work in other companies and they would call and say, hey, I need your help. Can you come back and do this thing with my team that you did with my my team of PNG when we worked together? And I'm like, I don't know, right? Um, and so I didn't know how to answer that, and I didn't know how to answer that. And I'm like, God, I've got a, a job and I've got four kids, and just I, I don't know, right? <laughs> and um, the calls continued to come. And then one day, one of my friends called, and she's like, I'm I'm not kidding. I really need you to come and do this work. And she'd been calling for several months. And the next day, the Rutgers people called and they said, hey, we're starting up this ed program. We want you to come and teach. And so I was like, this is the universe trying to tell me to open my eyes, right? And that was um, about three years ago, earlier this month, so February of 2017. And so that became a really, um, I would say, pivotal moment 
because I went and had a conversation with my design leader and said, here's what I'm getting invited to do. What do you think? And um, his response was, first, we don't own you. And second, um, we don't own design thinking. And so there was, I would say this perfect storm of, I would say this perfect storm of conditions, yeah. right? Yeah. That were yeah. really good on, um, you know, there's plenty of people running side businesses. That's not the issue. We don't have IP on the work that you're doing. So, you know, I'm fine with it. Here's the constraints. One is you don't work with a competitor. And two is you take vacation to run your business. And so spend a little bit of time working through paperwork and getting that all signed off. And then in April of 2017, I opened my business. And the following week, um, I had a first session with the client who kept calling. And two days later, had the first session teaching at Rutgers. That's 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 a cool story, and I think oh. I, I think it's interesting that you know Procter and Gamble seemed pretty open to you doing it, and I don't think that would necessarily be the case with every company. Mm. Um, so I think it was great that they gave you that opportunity. Yeah, uh, I'm so grateful because it really shaped the trajectory. Really shaped the trajectory of my life for sure. So, so you mentioned earlier when we started this that you're married and you have four children. Yeah. When you told your husband. Hey, honey, I want to quit my really successful job at a really stable company to work for myself. Well, how how was that conversation? How did that go? Yeah. Um, well, first, my my <laughs> my husband's amazing, and he's a banker who is um, not keen for risk. So um, it took a little while to to kind of figure out. All right, what is that going to look like? Um, yeah. But what was really great about it, and I think this speaks to the power of design thinking and how important it is to kind of show up with that lifestyle and perspective, is I was able to prototype it for 18 months. While working at Procter While Gamble. working, yeah, yeah, while not leaving the corporate environment. And so by the time that it, well, why did you leave when you left? And I said, well, I ran out of vacation. I said, well, I ran out of vacation. So when it was time to hop on the plane for the next client engagement, I didn't have the days left to do it. So that was my tipping point that I had to quit because I was booked. But I had no days left. So time to quit. Um, and so at that point, I had built up enough confidence in the model that, hey, I believe that this is something that's going to work. Um, and so his confidence had risen over that time as well. No, I mean, that is a, that is a great way to try it. So so can you share with the audience? So what is the name of your business? And when people ask you, what does your business do, right? Like what are, what are the, the key services your business offers uh, yeah. to your clients? Yeah, for sure. So the name of my company is Ampersand Innovation LLC. And um, for me, that was a really intentional name that I knew that should I leave one day, that's what the name was going to be years before I left. Um, because this whole concept of yes and, and about yes and, and the power of and, and not necessarily having to choose between, should I pick the people or should I pick the technology or should I pick the budget or should I pick the timeline, right? And I believe design thinking deeply allows you to connect with what's possible and to solve problems that previously weren't really solvable in those kinds of ways, right? And so you eliminate the trade-off. And so when I think of power of and, it was such a deep connector for me that the the obvious answer for for you know the name of my company was ampersand yeah um, and to kind of slam that together with innovation I think was really a, a good match 
and so when I think about the services that I get called to deliver, um, I think at a macro level, they're really grounded in unleashing the potential of people and ideas. And um, I get excited about that because about that, because about, I would say half of my clients kind of sit in that HR leadership space. The other half are more in the branding and innovation space. And that's a really fun place to play, right? I shared with you this employee value proposition example, plus the the one that ended up in a manufacturing site working on a specific brand challenge. That's exactly uh, mirroring the reality that, that I have today. And so sometimes that looks like, great, come in and help us facilitate a workshop on a specific um, innovation challenge or a brand challenge or this thing that we're up against. Um, sometimes it's a, hey, can you come and take my team through this exercise to really help us shape our strategy and our vision going forward? Um, sometimes it's, hey, can you come and teach the, the human-centered leadership principles, which are the exact same as design thinking, just showing up in the leadership capacity. Um, sometimes it's training design thinking um, in either a kind of a very fundamental, a kind of a very fundamental layer. Sometimes it's a facilitation layer. Sometimes it's a hey, all the people that just went to the fundamentals training or the facilitation training, now I'm going to have all their bosses come together. We're going to talk about how do you create these conditions where your team can go do the stuff that we just trained them on such that your investment can be realized. And so that's a lot of what I get called to do. Um, and it's super exciting because I tend to fall in love with the people and the problems and um, their solutions and their ideas to carry forward wholeheartedly belong to the team. Right, I feel right. really deeply responsible for giving them spaces where they can practice um, psychological safety and curiosity and this openness to being wrong, these things that I don't think a lot of organizations get right very often. And so even for a brief moment of time, whether that's a two or three day workshop or even a one day training and a one day training, um, how can I provide that set of conditions and that environment where they can step into that mindset where they believe things are possible that maybe they didn't believe were possible previously? See, I think I think for people listening, you know, what you just described, that, that is not easy to do. And what I mean by that is just going and delivering a three-day workshop, for those of you who have never done that, is completely exhausting, right? Because you're, you know, as someone... And I think a lot of people that are educators would probably agree, right? When you're on, you mm. know, facilitating that, that takes, it just sucks the energy out of you. Right. So I think that's exhausting. And then they're also bringing you in, not just in a lot of these cases, not just to teach them, but also help them solve a problem, which might be super critical to their, the, the future of their business. And mm -hmm. that's even another layer of, of, uh, of complexity and probably pressure for you being brought in to do that. So, I mean, it, it's, it's just interesting because you're putting a lot of, um, of um, putting a lot of faith into you over, you know, in, in a short amount of time to make a big difference, which I think is, that's, that's always challenging. You know, it is challenging that I think there's a little bit of a yes and moment there, Nick. So for me, I can't tell you how many times now, right. I think in the early days of um, really developing my expertise as a facilitator, I did get fired and I was trained and I'd go home and be mush. And, um, you know, now I leave often more invigorated and energized than when I kicked off in the morning because I'm so inspired by the energy of people and by what they bring. And that is real fuel for me. And I, I mean, get that, super excited about it. 
that shows you're doing the right thing is what I would say there. So let, let's pivot. I want, I want to do, um, I like to sometimes do some rapid fire questions yeah, and, tell me. and get, uh, get your quick thoughts. So I'm going to go through okay. maybe four or five and just you know, five and just, you know, we'll, we'll see what you share. So, sure. um, do you have a mentor? Oh, I have many, 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 <laughs> many mentors. Yeah. Right. Many for sure. And what is the value of those? What are the, what has the value of that been to you? Wow. You know, I think it really lives in this concept of, of the personal board of directors. And um, what I've learned over time is that having one doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Right. You know, when I was in the corporate world, I had a couple that were internal and I had several that were outside of the company. And I think that diversity of perspective really allowed me to um, have a richer mentoring experience. And I think it was, it, it's again, living the principles, right? If you think about bringing this diverse group of people together, I talked about the plant technician up to the president of North America, having that diversity and your that diversity and your, your mentorship community, I think is really important as well. So um, I would have people that were above me, people that were very junior inside the organization and being open to learning from everybody yeah, absolutely. is so important, right? Um, because somebody, everybody knows something you don't. <laughs> and it, I mean, every single person we meet in the world knows something that we don't. And how do, how can we be open to learning and exploring and to step into that space of choosing curiosity and going, I don't know, what do you think? And if it's not something we agree with or not something we like going, wow, I'm not sure I agree with that. Can you tell me more? Instead yeah. of, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think the conversation goes. That's well well said. I completely agree. So uh, next question, biggest accomplishment of your career? Oh, wow. Biggest accomplishment of my career. Um, I think that's a a great question and one that's connected to a value proposition session. Um, For me, when that work launched, when the new and current CEO took over in late 2015, was really my proudest moment because it was the very first time that the work that I had led literally touched every employee in the company. And how, and, how, how many employees was that? Um, it was around 100,000 at the time. That's a big deal. No, that's cool. And so that absolutely lit my heart on fire, right? When you think about, wow, one, the fact that when I started, I was you know, admired and admired probably is, is accurate in these, you know, micro emulsion stability challenges that I wasn't in love with. And I was longing for this connection to the people. And in that moment, recognizing the work that came out of the session that I led resulted in this approach, this approach to reset the culture under the leadership of the new CEO and to be able to really dial that back to these principles of human centeredness that I believe are so important in our world today. And I say world because I think it's our business and our personal lives. And um, that absolutely was the most satisfying experience ever. No, I, I could totally see that. So on the flip side, biggest failure of your career. Yeah, so I would say um, it's a great question and I think it's important to talk about it because I think a lot of times we cover those moments up and, um, you know, like I shared earlier, when I, I failed organic chemistry, 
I used to not talk about it. Now I talk about it a lot because I think it's really important. We all have these things that happen. Um, but when I think about career-wise, um, I guess it was about seven years ago, maybe even this week. Um, I I was my kids were going to a school at the time, going to a school at the time, and I was trying to figure out why is it that um, some other organizations in the city would would do kind of donor matching um, or donations. And right. I thought, yeah. my goodness, we can do that for very highbrow universities. Why can't we do that for these schools? And um, so I sent a, a pretty broad distribution note around saying, why can't we do this? And, blah, 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 blah. and um, that didn't go over so well. So I think it was, a, it was an epic political fail for sure. Um, but what did I learn from that, right? Which is exactly what I asked teams to to step into today when things don't go well. I learned that um, sometimes you think there's maybe more psychological safety than there is, and you end yeah, up learning the hard way than there's not, right? Um, but I think pushing and back to that congruence, if I'm not pushing the boundaries of what's possible, I don't think I'm doing my job. And I want to feel like that, I want to feel like that is a, lifestyle choice. So if that lands me in some, you know, political turmoil for a little bit, I'll take it. Yeah. Because I'd rather push and know, well, maybe I push too hard than not push at all. And I mean, it was something you were passionate about, which is why you, you did yeah, it. In sure. yeah. So, and yeah. I, for me, it was also a, a principled issue on, wow, if you can match the dollars on an Ivy university donation and tell me why this isn't going to work for a school in the area. What? Um, and so, yeah, that, that was not politically popular at all. Um, but I would do it again because of the congruence factor, right? Yeah. Um, and not every conversation is going to be comfortable and you learn from the uncomfortable conversations as well. And I absolutely learned some things from that moment. Um, but I also believe that, that you go for it. Right. Um, right. Um, and I think, you know, that that certainly wasn't a project fail. It wasn't that. But I think sometimes yeah. we, um, I would say maybe the, the political capital was harder to get back <laughs> than maybe a project recovery. Um, but when you think about putting it out there, I mean, for me, it's a it's an issue of are you all in or are you half in or one toe in or one toe out? Right. And for me, I'm all in. And that means, you know, you get the bold and, and kind of courageous Holly and you get the hold on a second can we rethink that moment as well um and all of that that's that's what I bring <laughs> no I think I think I, I think you learn a lot from things that don't go well and I think to your point yeah I think talking about them is really important so I I always try to ask that question because I think again this this whole show is about people learning from other people's careers and yeah. What, what went well? What, yeah. what, what went well? What didn't go well? How did their career go? And it's just, I think it's cool for people to hear different career stories to see how people made changes, right? And and how they were successful. Yeah, yeah. So I will close mm -hmm. with it because I always ask the last question, uh, always the same last question to every guest. You've obviously been very successful in your career, and you know you have a long career ahead of you to go. Still, you know you 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 haven't been at it for this for that long. Um, what is the one piece of advice that you would give to my listeners? to help them reach their full potential. So what is that one thing oh, wow. that's helped you be so successful throughout your time at P&G and now as an entrepreneur that you think has helped you be so successful? 
Yeah, you know, I, I feel like it's more of a question than it is an answer, or maybe there's, you know, value in both of those, Nick, and that is asking yourself on a regular basis, what's the worst that can happen? And um, I've had a lot of, of friends that have had some really severe health challenges, severe health challenges in their families. Um, and it's shifted my perspective, right, on what's the worst that could happen? You know, when I left my corporate job, um, I don't, I didn't know how it was going to go. And it's still, you know, I've been out about 18 months, but I've been running the business for almost three years now. And um, still don't know, right? Is this going to be viable yeah. for the next decade? But what's the worst that could happen? I go end up in another corporate job. Okay. Right. Um, I don't fear the ability to, to get a job. Right. So yeah, right. Um, I think I could get a role, no problem. But when I think about what's the worst that could happen, usually it's not work stuff. And when you put it into that context, you find a lot of courage to say, yeah, I'm going to go figure this out. And what's the worst that could happen? And then there's a couple of quotes that fuel me on a regular basis. Um, one of them is from one of my is from one of my former PNG colleagues who's now retired, who, gosh, I think about her all the time. Her name is Martha White. She's she's retired and she was an HR person. And she would talk about the universe cooperates with a made up mind. And really there is not a week, Nick, that goes by that I don't think about that quote from Martha. And I don't feel her asking me, you know, questions around that or telling me, look, you know, you've got this. The universe cooperates with a made up mind. Um, and I think those things matter. And I think about Joseph Campbell as well, kind of the godfather of the hero's journey and storytelling. And he talks about the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. And that is real too. <laughs> when you start to get these feelings of discomfort, I mean, I used to think, I'm not sure that's the best thing to, to go after. Now I feel like, oh, those are signals I should try really hard. Signals I should try really hard. And when I'm pushing teams to get comfortable being uncomfortable, I need to be congruent and model that as well. And that quote really pulls me through a lot of things. Um, but that that need to role model the behavior and the mindset is so powerful and compelling because I don't want to be in a space where I need to make those kind of trade-offs. I want well, two things. One is to be practicing that mindset. And I want my kids to see me doing something hard. And I wanted them to see me, and I don't know if they've internalized that. I mean, the oldest one is 14, the youngest one is six, right? So um, maybe they've soaked up more than perhaps I'm giving them credit for, but I don't really know, right? I, I want them to see me doing something hard. And whether it works out long-term or not, so far it's been a really great run. Um, I want them to to go, wow, she she took a risk and she, and she was fine no matter what. Well, I think so. I just think it's so funny that you said that because, and you mentioned the kids and how important kid, your kids are to you and my kids are to me. The whole what's the worst that can happen? My son was terrified of missing the bus. My wife made him miss the bus. And then he got to school. Like he melted down. Right? It was this big, big ordeal. And the teacher's like, well, what's the worst that can happen? No one died, right? You missed the bus. Right, and right. He got brought to school. And it was like this epiphany for him. He was like, oh, wow, right? So you can, yes. what's the worst that can happen? I feel could work in your career. It could work in your personal life. It could work with your kids. It's so simple. Yeah. 
if you just ask it that way, yeah. it's so powerful. So I think I, I absolutely love it. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that advice. Thank you so much for making time to speak with, with me tonight um, on the show. I know obviously you're busy with your husband, your four kids and your own business. So own business. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much again for everyone listening. We'll make sure that we link in the show description to how, you know, how to get in touch with Holly. If you want to learn more about her business and what she offers, or just, you know, if you need a, if you want to reach out and get some advice from her or you need a mentor, um, you know, uh, Holly, Holly loves chatting with people. Um, I always tell people the story, like we met through LinkedIn um, and we've done stuff together, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, where we've, Done, done some sessions together. We're doing this together. And I remember like I had someone who was like, they must've been in the early twenties. They're like, wait, you met through LinkedIn. I'm like, yeah, we met through LinkedIn. I'm like, I thought what she was doing was cool. So I sent her a message like, Hey, I want to hear what you're doing. And people were just shocked by that. So I just want to say thank you so much for making the time. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Nick, because um, I tell that story as well and how, how delightful it is because I, I believe deeply in, um, you know, my friend, Martha, right? The universe cooperates with the made up mind. I think the made up mind, I think the universe also serves up opportunities and connections and possibilities for us to say yes or to say no to. And um, I choose to say yes, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, absolutely. Um, how do we lean into more of that and to model that kind of energy and optimism and curiosity for the world? So Thanks for the opportunity to share the story. I hope that it was useful to, to your listeners. Um, but more importantly, thanks for reaching out and and modeling for the world what's possible when you say, hey, yeah, let's go figure it out together, right? Because right, yeah. um, I've so appreciated you coming into to my classes and, and and I guess lecturing with the students as well. And um, such a pleasure to be able to, to kind of with you this evening as well so thanks so much nick thank you all right we'll talk to learn more about our movement visit our website fullpotentialmovement.com or visit us on multiple social media platforms including instagram facebook and youtube